Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you've had a good day. If you're just climbing into your car, we are going to spend the hour with Dr. Mark Muska as we continue one of my favorite uh, segments of the show called Ask the Professor. So whatever question you may have brewing in your head, text it over. We'll get it on the air. We will ask Mark whatever question you have, something maybe has been brewing in your head for a long time and you've wanted to ask your pastor or you haven't gotten around to it. Now's the time. Text it over 877-933-2484. Again, ask anything. 877-933-2484. Mark, how are you? Doing okay. How about you? I'm well. Did you have yeah. a nice uh, nice time at Thanksgiving? We did. We overate and everything. So everybody took naps afterwards. Uh, it's a tradition. So Yeah, it's a good tradition, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The food was especially yummy this year, too. Really? Did you guys mm-hmm. do the traditional turkey thing? No, we we jettisoned the turkey a few years back. <laughs> we went around the table, and everybody said, you know, do you like turkey? Well, not really. Really? Thought, we thought you guys did and all that. And so we figured out we'd do something different. So. Nice. I don't even want to ask what you did. Uh, we had brisket and uh, pork loin nice. and then about five side dishes, so everyone was uh, thoroughly stuffed. Oh, that sounds that sounds nice. And the cook is sitting right here with me. She promised, I, I promised her I would not make her talk on the air, but you can at least say hi to her. And well, I will say hello to Karen. And yeah, I hope and she's uh, smiling and nodding right now. Good. But she's That's got awesome. her hand over her mouth too, so she is not going <laughs> to talk. Okay. <laughs> All right. So in the earlier segment today— uh, in the last hour, we were talking about the 12 apostles, and I was trying to help people learn a way to remember all 12. And we get to some names, like um, uh, Nathaniel was also Bartholomew. Yeah. Why did some have two names? Oh, that uh, there's uh, different reasons for that. It, sometimes it's a multi-ethnic uh, thing going on. Uh, you can point to that with Paul, for example, where... You read the book of Acts and you think Saul got lost someplace and then this Paul comes along. But right. he, he had these two names. The Saul name would be Hebrew and the Paul name uh, Greek. And uh, uh, it would be multi-ethnic sometimes if, uh, depending on where they were. Uh, Paul wasn't born uh, uh, in Israel. He was uh, from Asia Minor. Uh, which was a Roman colony that he was born in. And so he would use his uh, Greek name or his Roman name, Paul, when he was in that part of the world. But then in Israel, he would go by his Hebrew name or his Israelite name, uh, Saul. And uh, this, uh, this, is, uh, this is repeated even yet today, Bill. So I'm not sure when it comes to Nathaniel uh, if mm-hmm. that's the thing going on there. But it's uh, uh, different. Uh, it might have been a middle name he had, you know, multiple names before. Or his surname and and uh, that, but uh, people even yet today uh, will have uh, different names for different ethnic uh, areas that they're in. One of my really good friends that I made in seminary was a Chinese American guy, and he went by an American name when he was in North America. But then he and his family 
lived in Hong Kong afterward, and he did a, a ministry there, and he went by his Chinese name when he was there. Uh, it, it was more appropriate. So that may be one of the reasons why why the uh, names change like that. I, mm-hmm. I haven't done any specific uh, looking into Nathaniel, but yeah. that— that that uh, I would say that's a possibility. Yeah, and then we also have Jude or Thaddeus, and right. I think maybe that's why people freeze up a little bit when it comes to memorizing the names of the twelve. Because do you go with Jude or do you go with Thaddeus? Right. So you know that's uh, that's one of those Awana things, man. If you're gonna you know answer the questions <laughs> right, you better you get a big better get that worked out. Yeah. All right. Let me jump if we can to let's see. I mean, Please don't jump. No, okay, uh, I'm going to go slowly. Don't do it, Bill. Your life no, no. is still worth too much. Thank don't, you. Don't Thank jump. you so much. I'm off the ledge. Okay. All right. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Okay. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Yeah. Now, God is asking a question he obviously knows the answer to. Mm-hmm. What would be the Lord's motivation in this? What is he trying to help yeah, accomplish? That, uh, just for the context of this, this is uh, right after Adam and Eve uh, ate the fruit of the tree, and they were uh, they were hiding themselves uh, among the trees in the garden there. And so, in verse nine, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" And Adam said, "I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself." So, uh, God, one of the attributes that we hold on to is that He is omniscient, and what that means is is He knows everything that there is to know. And so he knew exactly where Adam was. Uh, the best guess I have, and parents will confirm this, is that sometimes you ask your child a, a question that you know perfectly well what the answer is, but you're using it as a way to draw your child out mm-hmm. and to uh, have them admit to things or acknowledge things, whatever it is. And so uh, uh, God here, it would be perfectly legitimate to, for him to be saying, you know, Adam, why aren't you just coming out to me? Where are you uh, you uh, you haven't acted like this before. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, and it's Ask the Professor, so whatever question you have, send it over. The text line is open, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Here's a very fascinating question, Mark, that just came in. Okay. When Romans 7-7 7, 7 says... If it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that without the law, one couldn't know they are sinning? Uh, that is a really good question, and it's really involved in the book of Romans because uh, Paul is, uh, first of all, the first 11 chapters in Romans, he's laying out a detailed explanation of the gospel. And he goes through the sequence there of talking about, first of all, what sin is and the guilt that we have and that we're all under God's condemnation. That's pretty much the first three chapters. And in there, he makes a case very clearly to say that it doesn't matter if you had the law or not. Uh, All of us have rejected what we have seen of God in nature and his attributes and gone after our own way. And so we are all accountable before God. None of us can use the excuse that, well, I I never knew him. I never saw him or anything like that. But by chapter 7, he's getting into different material now here to say, but with the law, you have to realize with the law, it is what makes us aware of sin. And so in uh, verse 7 there, 
Uh, he's he's defending the law that uh, he says, uh, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But then look at the next verse. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in the coveting of produced in the coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead and so the point he's making is it's not like we would be sinless without the law but the sin it inflame or i'm sorry the law it inflames sin and if you just think about it bill this is so self-evident paul doesn't even have to write it have you ever gone to a park and seen a sign in the grass someplace where it says keep off the grass mm-hmm and you notice the nice, well-worn path right, right by the sign. <laughs> one, yeah. of my, one of my favorite illustrations of this takes me way back to my days as a student at Northwestern. When we were on the Roseville campus, there's a tunnel that goes between the buildings. And in there, they had the pipes that heated the buildings. And these pipes were insulated with some squishy kind of material. I, I hope it wasn't asbestos, but it was something like that. But they had stenciled on these pipes three words. Can you guess what the three words were? Please don't touch. Well, you're close. It was do not dent. Do not dent. Because if you dented them, that would compress this uh, insulation and the pipes would lose uh, heat unnecessarily. Well, it didn't take long before you walked through that tunnel. And every time they had that stenciled there, was a whole nice little set of thumps in the, mm. in the tunnel. You know, Somebody's walking through there and... They see this. What happens? Do not dent. Sin grabs them and says, "Ho ho! You're not going to tell me what to do." And whap, you give it a wow. little. You give it a little shot. Hmm. Somebody finally read this in Romans seven and went through that tunnel and painted all that over of the do not dent. And now students walk through that tunnel. It doesn't enter into their mind to give the the the, the, the pipe a whack. Yeah, because the law is not there. That's so so interesting that. That is the force of what Paul is getting at there in Romans 7. Without the law, wouldn't no sin with the law. Oh, yeah, it, it inflames it. It's not, it, the, the law is not evil, but it really incites that wickedness within us, that rebellious. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, here's part two of that question. Okay. Was the Holy Spirit active in pricking the conscience of those under the law since baptism in the Spirit had not yet come? Yeah, that's really a good question. I know. Uh, I don't know if we can point to anything that would uh, uh, teach us one way or another before the time of the new covenant that uh, took place uh, was initiated on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Uh, We know Jesus said that the Spirit would be uh, one of his major roles, would be our companion to uh, give us a conscience towards sin. I love what he says about that in John chapter uh, 16, where he talks about that uh, when when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's on the Holy Spirit's job description to convict. And anybody who's been a Christian for any time at all knows perfectly well that happens in our conscience, that he speaks to us and says, hey, that's wrong. Uh, You shouldn't be doing that. Uh, So he acts in that role. Now, before that new covenant age that began in Acts 2, we don't get a lot of teaching that this is taking place 
by the Spirit. There's plenty of places in the Old Testament when somebody gets convicted. But just as I'm thinking about it right now, Bill, I can't think of a time where that's connected with some action of God's Spirit to convict them. I might be wrong. Somebody, if they can find a passage that says that in the Old Testament, I stand corrected. But if there is that, I I don't think it's very common. It's much more a standard part of the Christian life for us in this new covenant age that we're in. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. It's Ask the Professor. So let me know what questions you have for Mark. Text them over, please. 877-933-2488. 84 We'll be right back. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio change the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. Mark Muska, and it is Ask the Professor. So any question you have, he'll do his very best to answer it, 877-933-2484. Mark, uh, it's 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 13 to 23. 22, verses 13 to 23. I was looking at chapter 13, so let me get over there. 1 Kings 22, verses 13 to 23. Can you could you explain the conversation there? Um, Let's see here. Haven't read this lately, so I like when I put you on the spot like this. Yeah, with no advanced warning. I think it has to do with uh, Ahab, doesn't it? Let's see. I'm here. the radio host. You're the theology professor. Yeah, I'm just going to read some of the verses. Okay. Here. So, verse thirteen, it says, "Then the messenger." Uh, who went to uh, summon Micaiah, spoke to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uh, uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, uh, that I shall speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. (laughs) I don't know if he said it with sarcasm or what, but this next verse. Then the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat uh, Pilar, uh, Did I not tell you that he, Micaiah, would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? 
And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Is that far enough? Yeah, that's plenty. That's good. Yeah. Uh, This is a peek into the spiritual domain here of God acting and these uh, spirit beings around him and uh, this enticing spirit here that God— uh, six on Ahab here through the uh, the prophets. They they give him a false message. So uh, I could say a whole lot about that. What in particular do you want to talk about? Uh, just explaining that conversation and the spirits going down to entice. Yeah, it is uh, not a, a spirit of of, of uh, goodwill. Uh, it appears, even though it isn't labeled this way, it appears to be a demon. It appears to mm-hmm. be a fallen spirit, and God is uh, sending him to entice uh, the, or to uh, uh, deceive the prophets here to give Ahab a false message. Now. That you know, it gets. It, uh, maybe this is what you're talking about. They, uh, you can get into a lot of trouble here when we start talking about God is all good and there's nothing evil in Him to deceive or to uh, even to have these uh, evil demons around Him. How can He even speak to them in their rebellious state that they're in? And my answer to that is, I'm not really sure. I have never had an audience in the presence of God to see this and just exactly what this looks like with uh, possible demonic presences uh, there. Uh, we know from the book of Job that uh, Satan was able to come before God, and that led to all that testing that went on between uh, God and, and Satan there with Job kind of caught in the middle of it, whether he would still bless God if uh, God took away or if Satan took away all of his possessions and then his health itself. So uh, this... Uh, it's a peak and it's intriguing, but we have to be careful not to uh, say more than what the scriptures say. And the scriptures are unfortunately not interested in really explaining the whole thing to us. How can God use a spirit like this? Oh, he can do whatever he wants. Uh, this uh, I like to use this analogy, Bill, about this. Uh, it, it, it's almost as if you're talking with someone on a sidewalk, and he has on the end of his leash a very vicious dog. And now I got into trouble with this, naming certain kinds of dogs in the past. I remember so I'm that. Gonna, I'm going to talk about this. This is a really vicious poodle, okay? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Big teeth, All right. growling, just a very vicious thing. And this poodle wants to get that kid that's over there in the grass. He's just snarling at him. He wants to attack him and bite him and overcome him. But he's on the leash. And as long as his master holds onto that leash, he can't fulfill his desire to destroy that child. But now in this passage here in 1 Kings 22, it's as if God let go of the leash. This demon Mm. desired to deceive these prophets, to destroy Ahab. They had nothing but evil and wickedness in their mind, but God is able to restrain them. This comes out again in the story of Job, where it's quite clear God puts a limit on what 
Satan is able to do. You can touch his health, but you can't kill Job. So uh, God still is given the orders, but he allows these uh, evil uh, uh, demonic characters to attack like this, uh, but it's it's not God doing it, but it's God's releasing them to be able to do this. Is God still accountable there? In a sense, yes, but in a, another sense, no. Uh, this is what these demons desire to do at all times, and God is turning them loose at this time to, to d- do this to Ahab. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the Professor, 877-933-2484. Mark, you mentioned Job a couple times, and I also know that your wife is sitting next to you. I'm not going to ask her to come on the air, but in Job chapter 2, verse 9, she says to Job, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. What yeah. kind of comment is that coming from a wife? Yeah, that uh, she really had the gift of encouragement. There, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, that one stung. That is tough. It, it is, but you know, she represents the attitude. You know, this is the the whole book of Job revolves around this of why these terrible things happen, and it's obvious that God is causing it. And so uh, for some reason, you've found a lost, lost favor with God and he's giving you all these terrible things. And so curse God and die. It's just a little more blunt thing that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are going to mm-hmm. spend 25 chapters pretty much saying the same thing. You had to have done something wrong here. Uh, the, theologians call this retribution theology. God is sitting there with a mallet ready to whack you over the head when you sin. He wants to to give it, get you back for breaking the law or doing the wrong thing. And uh, the book of Job is written to, to uh, put an end to that kind of thinking. Yeah, sometimes when you do the wrong thing, you suffer for it, sure, uh, that's the case. But sometimes there's whole other purposes for your suffering that you have no idea about. I'd love to go to the New Testament in John uh, chapter 8 where uh, they come across, I'm sorry, it's John chapter 9, I believe, where uh, the disciples, come across this man that was born blind, and they ask Jesus, uh, who was it that sinned, Jesus? Was it this man or was it his parents that he would be born blind? You hear the retribution there? Mm -hmm. God cursed this man by making him being born blind. Did he do something wrong? Well, he wasn't even born yet, so maybe his parents, did they do something wrong? And bless Jesus as our Lord, his answer to that, he says, neither but that the work of God may be shown through him. If I understand that right, that man was born that way and lived to whatever age he was for that day that he met Jesus so that Jesus would be able to display his power in that man, healing him in a way that the Pharisees could not explain away. That's why he was born blind. It wasn't because of anything he did. Take that retribution theology. It's false. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, and it's, I'm angry at it, Bill, because so many people have used this to manipulate people in the past, to have them feeling all this guilt because there's cancer in their family or because uh, their, uh, their house has been devastated by a tornado or something like that. Oh, we must have done something. 
And that is a dead, a, a dead end line of thinking. Uh, yeah, you do the wrong thing and you may suffer for it, but there's a, a lot more to that conversation than just that retribution answer. So mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, I get worked up about that. You hate to see people who are already suffering, suffer more with the guilt that they must've done something wrong to deserve this. Yeah. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We call this Ask the Professor. Let me know what your question is. 877-933-2484. We'll be back in just a minute. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I hope you've had a good day, and if you're in your car heading home, I'm so glad you've tuned into Faith Radio. This is the Afternoon Show. I am Bill Arnold, and I've got Dr. Mark Muska as my guest on our studio line. Ask the Professor is the name of this segment, and it's going on all hour. We've got some great questions that were answered in the first half hour. Here we are now headed into the second half hour. And a question that came in is, I'm wondering, Mark, if when we get to heaven, will we know each other? Reason I'm wondering, it says, old things shall pass away. I'm wondering if there's anything in the Bible that says anything about that. I, I don't know about that. The, uh, you know, all things will pass away. All old things will pass away. All things will be new. Um, I don't know if that's in an absolute sense. Uh, you could push this to being kind of ridiculous, Bill, because if old things are passed away and all things are new, will we know one another in heaven? That's a pretty good question. Well, if all things are new, will we know who we are in heaven if if all things are new? You know, is it going to be like a baby where I got to figure out, well, hey, I'm Mark. That's right. That's me. Uh, that's ridiculous. And so the idea there of all things being new is, is that sin and evil and all this ugliness of the world is, is gone. All things are new now. And uh, honestly, I like to fantasize about that kind of thing to say, you know, the classic thing is, are we going to be floating around on clouds? Are we going to be playing harps? We'll be able to sing, uh, you know, actually uh, pretty nice by then, you know, all these kind of things. And uh, it's going to be so much farther above that, Bill. I mean, we... We have no idea. And heaven is just the prelude to then the new heavens and new earth and being here with Jesus and the Father and forever worshiping him and uh, being uh, fulfilled. Uh, we, I, don't think we can, I don't think we can conceive of that. I love the work that C.S. Lewis does in some of his uh, fiction to talk about how heaven, the afterlife, that's the real it's not this ethereal place where we're floating around on clouds. This is the 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 ethereal. Uh, that will be the permanent when we get to that uh, place of uh, everlasting life. Uh, honestly, I'll, I'll just bring in my son here for a minute because uh, he – I don't know what he was. He might have been six or seven years old, but – one night at dinner, he looked at me and Karen, just serious as a judge, and, and he said, Dad, I, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. It's like, oh, really? You know, why is that? And he said, well, I like home. And that just blessed my wife and me to hear him say that. But then the way we responded was, 
you know, Doss, what is it that you love to do more than anything in the world? And I think it had something to do with cars and making noise and, you know, playing with his toys and that whole thing. And I said to him, well, you know what? You'll be doing that in heaven or you're going to be doing something so much cooler than that in heaven. You won't care about the cars and making all the noise and everything. It's going to be so much better. And that satisfied him. But, you know, that satisfies me too. Nice. (laughs) Whatever it is. It's going to be so much greater and far exceeding anything our imaginations can conceive of that uh, it's going to be all things are going to be new. Mm -hmm. And I think we will know each other. uh, Otherwise, it would be disappointing, wouldn't it? Yes. So. All right. Here's another question, Dr. Mark Muska. Did Jesus keep the Old Testament law perfectly? And John 5.18 talks about Jesus breaking the Sabbath. Yeah, uh, that it gets kind of uh, that gets kind of complicated because uh, did he in fact break the Sabbath? He, uh, you know, Jesus. I don't know if it's a sense of humor or <laughs> a latent anger that he had, or a, a disgust and impatience with some of these legalists that were out there. You know what a legalist is, right? These are people that think that they can earn brownie points to please God. And they can justify themselves by doing good stuff. And the Pharisees were thick with that, as as were the scribes and the chief priests and the whole thing that Jesus had to deal with all the time. And so it's kind of fun that Jesus, I don't know if it's just a choice sense of humor, but when he did his miracles, it seems like he chose the Sabbath to do his miracles. Just to tweak their noses, you know, because, oh, man, you shouldn't have healed that guy on the Sabbath. That's work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you know, well, if your animal falls in a pit on the Sabbath, won't you help him out? Well, why shouldn't I help this guy on the Sabbath? But he loved to tweak them about that. But we have to, what we have to realize is that the law did not specify that what Jesus was doing was breaking the Sabbath. This was a whole set of what you might call uh, commentary and exposition on the law that had been going on in Israel for uh, 1,500 years or so by these scribes and rabbis, teachers, uh, lawyers, all of them, to uh, to uh, enumerate out what exactly what work was on the Sabbath. Granted, the, the uh, Ten Commandments, the law says that we are not to work on the Sabbath. If you're an Israelite, you don't work on the Sabbath. What what exactly is work? They got so picky about this. You could only take so many steps on the Sabbath before you were working. You, they they itemized it out, and the Sabbath became a chain around their necks of a burden. And uh, Jesus, in one of his greatest moments, he says that the Sabbath, uh, the man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. This was something that was given to us as a gift, not to be some burden. And so when he's, you know, accused of breaking the Sabbath, not once did he break the Sabbath. He broke these other sub-commands and instruction that all of these teachers had devised over the centuries. So uh, that we have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Here's a question, Mark, about some of the names for Jehovah. Is Jehovah Kadesh? Am I saying that right? I don't know. Oh, okay. I think so. And I'm, I'm fooling you even, which is yeah. interesting. Uh, the question is, is Kadesh a word for 
all holy concepts in the Old Testament. Is there another word? I don't, I don't know that word. Yeah, I'd have to look it up myself. I haven't looked at that lately. On yeah, yeah. This, of the various names for God, there's about six or seven of them that are really great. At, yeah, they're great in, names. I, in the context that they come in, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear words, because the words are important, when you hear words like values, then you hear words like, well, we have values, then we have core values, um, or you have you're a disciple or a true disciple. When you hear that, are, are you going to follow Jesus in true discipleship? What would that mean to you, Mark Musco? Uh, That's kind um, of an obscure question, so I'm going to give you time to think about that. No, I, I think it's I think it's a fair question. Uh, there's a lot of different words used for what is right and what is wrong. Uh, value usually gets into what's important to you. What are your priorities? Uh, honestly, I like to use another V word in the place of values. I like using the word virtues for morals. You know, what are the virtues of of uh, loving people, of uh, self-sacrifice? These are uh, – it fits more to call those a virtue rather than a value. But uh, are they core values? What are the most important things? Jesus tells us that, that the whole law – and prophets is summed in loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors, ourself. The whole law is fulfilled in that, is summed up with that. So those would be core values or core virtues. And so to follow Jesus means is that we, number one, seek to know him, not just to know about him, but to know him as we see him working in our lives and interacting with us in our daily lives and the prayers and the things that we see that uh, that happen to us that we attribute to God's work and Jesus' work in our lives. And then obedience, of course, is part of this as well, to walk with Jesus. When you're walking, you do something. You're not just thinking something. And so it means that we are dead set to do uh, what we can in the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that pleases Jesus. Uh, aren't you grateful for what Jesus has done to reconcile you to God, Bill? Oh, isn't, yes. Isn't that something that you wake up every morning and just shake your head and smile and say, hallelujah, that's just awesome. And so don't you want to please the person who made that possible? Yes. And that's that, to me, is the core of following Jesus not getting a list of 27 things that you can do or can't do, but uh, a spirit and an attitude of gratitude and rejoicing and praise for the one who uh, who made all that possible. I think that's probably the core reason why worship music is so meaningful to so many followers of Christ is because it brings the emotional component of music in to be able to worship and praise and show our gratitude to God for all the things that he's done for us. Uh, Sometimes talking just doesn't get it done singing and uh, singing triple forte especially. You know, who cares about quality? Get it out there and belt it out uh, because it comes from the heart. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, yeah, I I think that's what a true disciple is, someone who is following Jesus, doing the things that please him because of what he's done for us. I like it. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, 877-933-2484. I heard today that Satan is a fallen angel and that there are other fallen angels. Yeah. So I was wondering that is any angel in heaven able to become fallen? 
Oh, and, that's a really good question. Yeah. yeah. What's, what's your next one? I, I uh, cut you it's off. It's part of it. No. And do we become angels when we go to heaven? That's yeah. the end of the question. Well, the last one I'll deal first is that that's a lot of folklore that gets into that. One of Karen's and my favorite Christmas movies, we're going to watch it again this year, is It's a Wonderful Life. And remember in that, Clarence is supposedly a guy who died a couple of hundred years earlier. <laughs> and he's trying to earn his wings by helping the main character, Jimmy Stewart, here uh, get out of the, the pickle that he's in. Uh, there's a whole lot of folklore about there. Not a whole lot of biblical evidence for that. Uh, angels are a class of beings created directly by God. They are spirit beings. And uh, we do not become angels uh, when we uh, we die and go to be with Christ. Now, the other part about that, uh, uh, give it to me again, Bill, exactly. Um, let's see here. I already moved on to my next question. Oh, I'm sorry. As I was listening. No, 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 I'll, I'll find it. Well, I, it I'm oh, I know what it is. It, it's it, the idea of cons- it, uh, angels uh, sin today and rebel against God and become demons. And the answer to that is, I don't know. Okay. It's not spelled out in the scriptures, but I lead in the direction of saying, no, they can't. It appears as though that there was a time, sometimes we call it a moral probationary time for these spirit beings, these angels to either follow God and commit to that or rebel against him and be lost and to be demons. But it appears as though that time has passed. And I'm getting there by observing in the scriptures that there's not one iota of evidence of any angel being tempted and fallen and falling into sin now after this probationary period was over with. Not a single word in the scriptures to give you that idea. And there's not a single word in the scripture that offers um, a grain of sand kind of hope for any demon to be able to repent and to be able to become, again, a follower of God and an elect angel. Not one hope that everything about the demons points to a day of judgment where they're going to be thrown into this awful lake of fire uh, where they're going to be tormented uh, forever and ever. So with that in mind, Bill, I just don't think that that probationary period is going on yet. What makes it more important, Bill, is what about us? Is it possible for us once we get to heaven to fall into sin again? And is there any hope for those who die apart from Christ after they die to be saved? Can they still put their faith in the gospel? And my answer is the same thing. This is our probationary time when we're living and breathing in on the earth today. And once we take our last breath, it's been decided and that we are forever lost if we're apart from Christ or we are forever with the Lord. We will always be with him. And that uh, that has its troubles. That has its controversy to it. A very famous high-profile pastor wrote a book about this about 10 years ago where he called this into question that God still works on those who've been judged and tries to woo them toward Christ and his love never ends. And so eventually everyone is saved even after they die. Uh, that's some fantastic thinking on it. Unfortunately, I wish it was true. I don't want anybody to be separated from God, but uh, just uh, doesn't uh, reflect what the scriptures teach. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. The, the text line is open, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
Hi, this is Bill Arnold, and thank you for checking out the podcast. I'm always glad when you make your way over to MyFaithRadio.com and look through the menu of everything you can listen to, programs that have already aired that you might want to hear again, or maybe you have a friend or a family member in mind that would really be blessed by hearing something you heard And then it gives you an opportunity to talk about it and share your faith with a loved one. It's one of the great things I love about the podcasting at Faith Radio. And we have a great fundraiser coming up, so I would love for you to say yes to that. You can text the word GIVE right now to 877-933-2484 or follow the link in the show notes to give your gift today. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand. We have a couple more minutes with my friend Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the Professor is the name of this segment. Great questions have come in. Thank you for those. I so appreciate you uh, texting in the questions to 877-933-2484. You don't want to leave me asking all the questions, so I appreciate that. Here's one, Mark, uh, 2 Peter 3, 13. God will set the heavens on fire. Heavenly bodies will melt. I don't understand this. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, sometimes uh, not really. Second uh, Peter isn't high on people's list as far as uh, reading material, and uh, he's got some things to say about this earlier in Second Peter too, about uh, what the future is for the the world that we live in. And so, uh, you uh, read verse thirteen there. Uh, I'm going to start at verse ten, where it says, uh, "The day of the Lord." will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then he calls them again to be diligent, to be found in in God, in peace, spotless and blameless. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, this talks about the destruction of the earth. And, you know, there's there's quite a bit of discussion about this, believe it or not, Bill, among Bible scholars, that uh, is there going to be a restoration of the earth, kind of like, you know, are we going to get back to what the conditions were in the Garden of Eden? Is there going to be this renewal and this uh, uh, revitalized earth? A recreated earth of, of what we have now, or is the earth and the heavens going to be burned up, like this says in Second Peter, and then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So God isn't just going to renovate the earth. He's going to destroy it and then make a new earth. And honestly, Bill, uh, I've got really good friends that disagree with me on this, but I, I have trouble getting around this in Second Peter to say, I think the whole shmeel is going to get burned up. 
and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. There still is a Jerusalem in this new earth. We read about this in the book of Revelation, but it seems as quite clear here that the the elements are going to be melted up, the, the heavens are going to be burned with fire, and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. I'm sure not going to uh, become enemies with somebody who disagrees with me about this, but it is a, a difference as we wonder about the future and how everything is going to culminate. So uh, I think we can discuss these things, and I hope it draws us to do what Peter says here. It's great to speculate about this stuff, but really uh, it's the, the important thing is with that in mind, the, this is going to happen. There's going to be at the very least a complete renovation of the earth or the whole thing is going to be burned and recreated. What kind of people should we be today? You know, take a look at that car in your garage or that fabulous home that you have and all these things that we have in our own little kingdoms that we make. It's not going to last. You remember the old uh, thing that we used to say 40 years ago, Bill, that the only thing that lasts forever is uh, the, 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 the love of Jesus and the Bible, uh, that everything mm-hmm. else is gone. You love know, that. It's not going to be around. So uh, I hope it motivates people to live in a certain way today knowing what's coming. Uh, We're not to be building our kingdoms for today. We're to be building that place in heaven. Jesus got into this where he says, don't, you know, store up your treasures where the moth can get at it or the thief can get it or rust, but put your treasure in things that cannot rust or fade uh, the things of, of God, the things of heaven. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Mark, how, there's a question, how can a person be happy in heaven if they get there and realize that a loved one, a wayward son or daughter who passed previously, for example, is not there? Yeah. Boy, that's a tough question. We're getting toughest. into all these today, though, about the, you know what's coming in the afterlife. And that's not all, all bad to think about because it is something that's spectacular that we anticipate and so uh, I, like to, uh, I, I like to think that somehow God gives us consolation in that. Sitting here knowing that there are people I really love that I'm not sure where they're at with Jesus and whether they have been reconciled to God. And to think of what awaits them, it's so horrible. You, you have to think about something else. It's just an awful thing to think of what they face. And so— uh, I don't honestly know how we can be in happy in heaven knowing that unless God somehow soothes us and takes away those memories and whatever we're experiencing in heaven or the new heavens and new earth is so powerful that it pushes the rest of this sadness away from us. There's a little hint that a lot of pastors have used in the past to talk about how uh, God will console us. It's in Revelation 21. And it, uh, John's describing here, he says, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And then listen to verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. 
there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. It's a, a wonderful worship song that was written a few years back. I was able to sing this with my daughter at my mother-in-law's funeral in Texas. You heard the song, Bill, No More Night, mm-hmm. No More Pain. I love that. No More Tears, Never Crying Again. Praises to the great I am. We will live in the light of the risen lamb. So maybe that's the answer to this. I just, I don't know otherwise. Yeah, not only do you assure us, Mark Muska, but you do it with a very comforting voice. It's got to bring comfort, doesn't it? It does. It does. All right, I got another question, and time is running out. Okay. Uh, My neighbor believes in replacement theology. What is a good way to uh, argue that? Well, replacement theology, for people who don't know this, this gets to the idea of the relationship of Israel in the Old Testament and now the church in the New Testament. And that's a barn burner of a great discussion to have. Is is this something that is uh, two different plans or purposes of God, Old Testament times versus New Testament, or is there continuity or a seamlessness of that between Old Testament and New? And out in the extreme part of this of this seamless plan between Old Testament and New, they will uh, advocate, if I get this right, I, I hope I say this correctly, uh, that they believe that the church now is Israel, mm-hmm. the new Israel, and we are the true Jews, and therefore all those promises and all those things that were promised to Israel in the Old Testament, the church has replaced them. And now replacement of this, and now there's no kind of inheritance for the Jew for being a Jew. The only way for an Israelite to be uh, part of those promises is to uh, put their faith in Jesus and become part of the church. There's no place now for the nation of Israel or any of that in God's future program. So it's awesome that we have a nation of Israel in the Middle East right now, but for these replacement theology people, they don't see much of any importance to that with God's plans or promises for what's coming in the future. Mm-hmm. So they basically believe that the Jews are no longer God's chosen people and God doesn't have any specific future plans for the nation of Israel. Yes, as such. As, as such, yeah. The, as an ethnic group, okay. as a nation, yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Mark, uh, I still have way more questions coming in, but guess what? It's time to take your wife to dinner somewhere nice. Yeah, you did have to bring that up, didn't you? Well, so. she's smiling right now, she and is. she's nudging you with her elbow into your ribs going, good luck getting out of this one. No, all she has to do is smile at me. (laughs) All right. Thank you for taking time, and it's so nice to hear your voice. I wished I was seeing you in person in the studio, but I always love having you on the show. Yeah, it's been fun, and I I wish the very best for you in this holiday season that you can keep your eye on the important things. Amen to that. Thanks, Mark, and have a great evening. Okay, God bless you, Bill. God bless you. That's our show for tonight. Uh, Tomorrow we're having a big day. We're going to have our one day, one day only winter fundraiser and i promise we're gonna have a lot of fun tomorrow so make sure you tune in and stay tuned because we are gonna give god glory and praise and honor and we're gonna celebrate the amazing thing god's done in faith radio see you tomorrow thanks for listening programming like this is made available through your support information available at myfaithradio.com